The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Tomorrow is Christmas, and for many Americans that means one thing, presents. Everybody loves presents. Our entire economy is built around the fact that people are going to spend a ton of money on gifts. In fact, economists have calculated that this year is going to be the highest spending year on gifts in history. This year, the average American will spend $906 on gifts. Now, please note that is people, individuals, not working, employed adults. That means my household of six people, to keep up with the averages, would have to spend $5,436 on presents. <laughs> my kids would love that. That's <laughs> not going to happen. If you're visiting with us, or if you just recently started coming, it's probably worth noting that the way that we preach here at this church is to preach exegetically, which means we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. For the last two years, we've been going through the book of Mark, and today we've arrived at Mark chapter 14, and we're going to go through verses 1 to 11. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, it would be very helpful for you to have that and to have that open so that you can follow along. I'm going to be preaching, if you have it available, from the English Standard Version. But before I read this to you this morning... Let me give you a sense of the structure of this passage so that you know what to look for as we examine God's word together. In our text, we have another inclusio. If you've been around listening through this series very long, you'll know that an inclusio is one of Mark's favorite literary devices. They call it in theology terms, the Markin sandwich. That's where he starts a story, and then he will go to a completely different story before coming back to finish the first. So it becomes a sandwich, and much like a real sandwich, the meat or the meaning is in the middle. So today, we're going to be seeing another one of his inclusios. Now, I have the great honor of reading for you from God's very own self-revelation. This is the most important thing you will hear all day. This is God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, which is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. There's your first slice of of bread. That is the basis of our inclusio. And now we transition into the emphasis of the passage. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now Mark finishes his Mark and Sandwich with the final part of his inclusio, beginning in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray that God would bless the hearing and the application of this holy word. Oh, our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning. It is not always readily clear to us just how desperate and empty we are. Please, God, reveal to us where we are lacking and fill us. God, I pray that you would reveal to us our flaws and our brokenness and our sins and pray, Lord, that you would heal us. Where we are weak, Lord, make us strong. Where we have neglected you, please, Lord, capture our affections and reveal to us your own glory. Oh, Lord, for those who are here that are your children, we pray you would help us to delight in your love. Help us to worship you by hearing your word. Lord, I pray that you would tear down any idol that we have erected in our lives. Lord, for those who are discouraged or dismayed, I pray that you would let the cross of Christ lift their countenance. And for those who are proud and those who are unrepentant, Lord, I pray that you would let the gospel bring them to their knees. Give me strength, Lord, this morning, and give me wisdom as I Attempt to deliver your word with faithfulness. Please, Lord, let me preach it to your people with clarity and with compassion. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth as you promise it will with great power. Please, God, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to us. Make us more like Christ. Lord, I pray that you would rapture our attention today. It is so easy to be distracted by the many things happening in the world around us during the holiday season. But God, I pray that you would draw our attention and fix it upon Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that you would come and conform us to the image of your beloved Son. Amen. Today, we are going to look at that passage I read moments ago, and we're going to consider three gifts that we see in them. Typically, when you hear about the three gifts of Christmas, it's the frankincense and gold and myrrh, right? I can spell one of those three words. But today we're going to look at three different gifts. We're going to be looking at Mary's gift, Jesus' gift, and Judas' gift. But first, let's get our footing by acclimating ourselves here to the setting where these events take place. Over the past several weeks, we've been seeing Jesus overcome opponent after opponent. He's been teaching in the temple courts, and every type of Jewish person has come to oppose him. Every one of the Jewish elites have come, and Jesus has made them look like a fool by answering them flawlessly every single time. Jesus has effectively rendered them powerless in the eyes of the people. They've been made to look like they know nothing, and now they are fuming in anger. So this chapter opens with them 
seeking to destroy Jesus. They are plotting political subterfuge that cannot be underestimated. Now, Mark informs us in verse 1 that the chief priests and scribes were, quote, seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. This is no game. This is now moved from trying to make Jesus look like a fool in front of people. They are playing for keeps. Their motives are not left ambiguous or to our imagination. This is now an assassination attempt. But why the secrecy? Why not just do it? Why not just approach him and stab him to death or find him in some other way and kill him? Well, here's why. Mark informs us that the religious leaders did not want their methods to become public because they feared that the result would be a riot. At this time in world history, Jerusalem was a hotbed of zealots and insurrectionists. If you think that our current political climate is challenging or tense, you should have felt the anxiety of the people in those days. Peace was balanced on a razor's edge, and the chief priests and the scribes knew that killing the people's most recent obsession, or at least curiosity, would probably lead to their becoming more unpopular, maybe even their removal. They would definitely lose power in the sight of the people, and they might even lose their lives. So they were not willing to do this publicly. But we see the wisdom of Jesus in many ways in this passage, but one of them is just in the way he made his travel plans. He knew that his life was going to be snuffed out. He knew that it was going to be taken from him by sinful man. But no one took his life. He said already in John chapter 10 verse 8, no one takes my life from me. They can't. They're powerless to do so. He says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Now, these people are plotting an assassination attempt, but they could never find him unless his plan were to unfold. He also knew it's not his time yet. So Jesus laid low. He did not rent a place in Jerusalem. He didn't stay where he had the upper room meal, but instead he traveled several miles away where he would spend his mornings and evenings. So in the midst of all this turmoil, in the opening of this chapter, that is bleak, that is dark. But every time Mark transitions the scene to Jesus, it is light, and it is joy, and it is brightness. And so here we see a definite transition into, into perceiving Jesus. And he is, in the midst of all this turmoil, at the house of a man named Simon the leper. Pause for a moment and consider the guy's name. It means that at one point, he had leprosy. So I think it's safe to say, knowing the the rules around lepers in that day, that this man had experienced the power of Jesus in being healed. So Jesus is at a party being thrown for him by a man who has been healed by him. This is likely, most likely, Wednesday morning, which is two days before Passover. This is when we see the giving of the gift. We see Mary's gift. Now, verse 3 says, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointments of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, this is very unusual. I mean, when was the last time you had a party and somebody walked in and started pouring pouring shampoo or oil on top of somebody's head? This is unusual. This is abnormal. This was not something that happened, not then and not now. But what is happening here is of extreme significance. First, let's consider this woman. 
Although we know from the other gospel accounts who this woman is, her name is Mary. She is the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Mark chooses to leave her name out of the account. He does so because this really isn't about Mary. The point of the story is not her, but the one to whom she is giving the gift. Now, she brought with her an alabaster flask, which is filled with pure nard. Now, I don't really personally understand what it's like to live in a world where it's hard to get stuff. I have Amazon Prime. I get frustrated when it takes three days for something to arrive to me from the West Coast. In this time in world history, pure nard was made in one place, and that was central India. And to get anything from India was incredibly dangerous and therefore highly expensive. This one little flask was 300 denarii. This one little flask was worth about the same amount that an average worker would get in one year of labor. This is expensive shampoo. In fact, this was typically not used to wash yourself or to basically use as cologne. No, this was designed to be used for burial purposes. Also, we must remember that women didn't really have the opportunity for employment during these times like they do now. So expensive things like this, keepsakes like this, were only owned by women if they had been given to them as a gift or if they had inherited them. And they were often not used. They were often saved or passed down to the next generation or they were saved for sale at a time of great desperation. Now, we know from the book of John that Lazarus had died and that Jesus had brought him back from the dead. But have you ever noticed that, that Mary didn't use the ointment on her brother's dead body? That's what it's for. But she hadn't used it on Lazarus. It's likely that she was unwilling to let this go. She wanted to hold on to it. She needed it. She needed the security of it. I can just imagine Mary taking this little bottle out of the drawer after his death and looking at it wondering, how long is it going to be before I have to sell this in order to provide for Martha and myself? But then Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. She put it back in the drawer. She didn't need it anymore. Well, in our passage this morning, Mary enters into the room where Jesus and the disciples are eating. Now, it says that they're reclining at table. That's because they used to eat laying down. That sounds like a really wonderful thing I would love to try. And she comes in and she takes the alabaster flask and she breaks it. There's a neck on it which would have been thin and she shatters it. And then she pours the oil, the contents of it, over the head of her Lord. Now, Mark is lovingly here presenting Mary as an example of true discipleship. This is real, godly living. He is recounting this historical event so that we, us, in this room who follow Jesus Christ, might see the example of this woman and understand what the Lord desires. Notice, Jesus didn't ask Mary to do this. He never told her this is what he wanted. She desired to do this. She desired to honor him. She wanted to do whatever she could to give glory and honor and praise to her Savior. Notice that in order to pour out this ointment, Mary had to break the neck of the bottle. This was a one-time use product. It was all or it was nothing. Even so, she was unflinchingly resolved to give up whatever was most precious to her in order to be a blessing to Jesus. 
Now, there's a lot of aspects of theology which are challenging to understand. Eschatology, ecclesiology, pneumatology, biblical anthropology, all sorts of things that is hard to get a grasp of and systematize and, and fully comprehend. But Christian discipleship is not one of them. It is very basic. It is simple enough that a child can understand it. Mark has given us here an example of what true discipleship looks like. Let me boil it down to you into two inseparable statements. These are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And if you have one, you will necessarily have the other. There's two things. Love Jesus and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus and love Jesus. That is what discipleship is. That is the foundation of godly Christian living. It's not about following a list of rules. It's not about checklists or rituals. It's about loving Jesus and following after him. And by following, I mean that we attempt to imitate him. Not because he's some individual that we just have learned about and we just don't care about. We just want to be famous like them. No, we imitate them him because we love him. So let's drill down on this for a moment. Please understand, I can't see your heart. I don't know what's going on inside of you. I'm your pastor. All I see, though, is your actions. That's it. And from the outside, our church appears to be pretty healthy. We do a lot of things that are emblematic of healthy churches. We're, we're young, we're small, but from the actions, we appear healthy. Don't be deceived. Judas appeared to be a healthy disciple. He looked healthy from the outside. He blended in well. But by the end of our chapter today, we're going to see him sell Jesus out for a handful of coins. So please don't let this message be a surface level tickling of your ears. Instead, truly consider if you are willing to be the kind of disciple that would give up everything for Jesus. Now, it's easy to grandstand and make big promises or commitments based upon hypotheticals. We can say things like, if I was only a good public speaker, then of course I would share the gospel more often. If I was just an extrovert instead of an introvert, then of course I would be more evangelistic. If I was just a better reader, then I would study more. I would memorize the, the, the scripture more. If I was a millionaire, I would give a lot more to missions. Of course, we can grandstand upon hypotheticals, but you might be thinking... I would break a flask like this if I had the opportunity. Given the chance, if I had that product and the opportunity to walk into a room where Jesus was, I would do the same thing and snap the neck off of that without hesitation to give it to Christ. I'm just looking for my time to do something great for Jesus. Perhaps that's what you're thinking. But I I want you to make sure that you do not miss the reality that if you are a Christian, Christ lives and abides in you. Therefore, every single action of your life, everything that you do is designed to be a breaking of that flask for your Savior. Every breath that you breathe is supposed to be a time when you say, I am giving you my everything and I am keeping nothing for myself. I am laying down my security. I am laying down my self-reliance and all of my aspirations and I'm giving this breath into your hands. That is supposed to become Second nature for us as a believer. So point number one is Mary's gift. But I think I've probably been unclear or misrepresented it to this point. Because I'm not speaking about the gift that Mary gave. Rather, I am speaking about the gift that Mary had already received. 
See, the only way that we ever give something up is if we are getting something better in return. That's the way that we operate as human beings. Mary was willing to give up this prized possession because she recognized she had already found her real treasure. It was right there in the room. It was Jesus. And Mary is a living example of what Paul would later write in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So let's just get this straight right up front. You don't actually own anything. There is nothing in this world that really ultimately belongs to you. Everything is God's. Everything that you have been loaned, have owned is really loaned to you by him at any moment he could rightfully remove anything that you have from you and he would be absolutely justified in doing so you don't believe me read the book of job did god need to apologize those things that belonged to job were they really his of course not your wealth what do you have that you have not received every resource that you could ever have has come to you from God's own hand. In a moment, he can reclaim that if he wants. What about your intelligence, your mind, this gift that God has given to you? Who crafted it? Not you. Who gave you the capabilities that you have? Not you. If God desired to do so, he could take your sanity or your cogency from you quicker than I can snap my fingers. He would do that if it was his desire. What about your health? Eventually, All of us are going to die. You are not promised another breath. And God has appointed the circumstances and the timing of your death. He knows when it will be, and he will be right in finishing that part of the curse over your life. Nothing you have is yours. Nothing that I have is mine. That's why radical discipleship is the only sensible way of living. Recognizing this does not belong to me. It belongs to you. Mary understood this, and she understood this little flask of oil, although it was expensive in the eyes of her peers, very valuable, was of no value in comparison to Jesus Christ. So she took the most valuable thing she had, the thing that the world saw as her security, and she emptied it on Jesus. Why? Because she recognized that he was her gift. He was the gift that had been given to her. Knowing Jesus was her greatest treasure. What compares to that? So perhaps you've heard me saying here, I want you to give Jesus a gift. Please understand that is not what I am saying because you have nothing to give. There is nothing that you have to offer. That little bottle that she had full of nard, that stuff belonged to God, did it not? She was just using God's own product to bless the Son of God. Now, just as a side note, what if she hadn't done that? No one would care about this little flask now. Where would it be? At best, broken in some pit in the middle of the Middle East. Somebody might someday dig it up and put it in a museum. That's it. It's of no great value now. But if you get this aspect of discipleship correct, you will delight 
in serving and honoring and blessing Jesus. If you recognize that everything is really his, then it will be a joy to you to serve him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says this amazing thing. Let's try to wrap our minds around it. It says, in fact, this is love for God. What is it? What does it look like? To keep his commandments. And then it continues, and his commandments are not burdensome. Are you kidding me? Have you read the commandments? They're hard. They're difficult to do. Why is it, how is it, that we could say these are not burdensome? It's because we see that what we are doing is something he rightfully deserves. The gift that God has given to us in Christ far surpasses anything that I could ever do for him in response. So let's consider a few aspects of your religious activities and consider them through this lens of discipleship. You're not giving God anything when you come to church. I know many times I've thought that way. God, here, I'm doing this for you. You're not giving God anything when you attend church. Having the ability to gather together with the saints of God is actually a gift to you. And by coming here and joining with the saints, you're actually receiving a gift from God. This is not designed to be some kind of Christian punch clock where you come in and you punch in and then you've done your time and you clock out. No, that's not what it's supposed to be at all. The church is a staging ground for the battle of your affections. It's where we reorient our love to move it away from the things of the world and set it where it's supposed to be back on Christ. This is a hospital for those who have been wounded by the attacks of the world. It is a feast for those who delight in God's word. It is the most genuine and real community that anybody could ever experience on this earth. You're not giving God a gift. You're simply receiving one that he's given to you. What about your daily devotions? I know that There have been many times where I open my Bible and I begin to read it thinking this is my act of of giving to God. How backwards is that? What am I doing when I open the pages of Scripture? If all I am doing is thinking I'm giving God a gift, then I'm doing nothing more than puffing up my mind. If you recognize what this is as a gift from God, then your personal time will be treated like a gift, like you are receiving and rejoicing and reflexively responding with a heart of worship, whereby you are built up and sustained in your faith. If you view prayer as simply a way to ask God for gifts, then you're missing the entire fact that the act of prayer itself is a gift of God. The fact that you and I could stand before the presence of the throne of God without him crotching us to death, that is a gift. Most of us view prayer like one of those fire alarms would say break glass in case of emergency. I don't need that right now. Just got to better leave it there and wait until something terrible happens. But that's not what prayer is all about. It's communion with God. Prayer is fellowshipping with him. It is enjoying God and crying out for his involvement and presence in our lives. You're not giving God a gift when you pray. And you're not giving God a gift when you evangelize or share the gospel with others. You are simply receiving a gift that God has graciously allowed a filthy sinner like you or me to become a shining beacon of truth in the darkness of this world. You have a great honor. Think about this. We get to become an actor in the cosmic drama of God redeeming his people. What power do I have to save anybody? None. 
But God tells me to go out there and be involved in the saving of people. Why? Does he need me? No. But does he let me? Yes. And do I get to have the joy of seeing people radically transformed before my eyes? Yes. It's not giving God a gift to share the gospel. But let's go beyond our religious activity for a moment. This kind of true discipleship where we love Jesus and we follow Jesus radically affects every aspect of our lives, not just the religious activities that we're involved in. True discipleship shifts our priorities away from self-honoring to Christ-honoring in every arena. It makes everything that you do, everything you ever do, becomes an act of spiritual worship. Let's consider some of the most mundane things of life for just a moment and see how they would be different if we truly lived a life of discipleship like this. What's your relationship like with food? If we understand what Mark is teaching us here about discipleship, then food becomes less about self-satisfaction and it becomes more about a desire to be healthily and optimally fueled to use our body for God's glory and the expansion of his kingdom. Now, it is a great honor and an amazing delight that God has allowed us to experience pleasure in our taste bud gratification when we do this but ultimately my food the reason i am praying for it is not saying just thank you for providing but thank you for preparing me to be your servant what about your job now your job is about a paycheck but it's much more than that if it's only about your paycheck then you will be willing to compromise anything to reach a higher level of paycheck If it's always about having that financial security, then you're going to do anything to be on the good side of your employer. But your job is God's given platform to you where you can not only share the gospel with others, but you can use those gifts that God has designed uniquely in you and combined uniquely in you. You can use them as an expression of honor to your king. What about your spending? Merry Christmas. $906 on average per person of purchasing gifts. What about our spending? True discipleship recognizes that the resources that you and I have, they're not mine. If Christians really viewed our bank accounts as God's money that are to be used for God's purposes of building God's kingdom, I think that our spending habits would be immediately curved away from stuff and immediately curved much more towards the advancement of his kingdom. Now we could go on through every category of your life. We should do that on an individual level. But I want you to know, we really don't do this normally. This is not our common practice or act. We don't think about these things naturally. 99.9% of what you and I do, we do out of habit and we do out of instinct. So how do we make this kind of discipleship habit? How do we make this kind of worship for our king instinctual? Here's how. Mark is calling us to live with unflinching resolve, like Mary did, to do whatever is necessary to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. That's what our life is to be geared around. God is the greatest giver, and Jesus is the greatest gift. You can't outgive God. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave the treasure of heaven. He gave to this entrenched world that is trapped in its rebellion, who had become enemies of God, sinners like you and me. He gave 
that world. He loved that world so much that he gave his son, who would die the death of a criminal, and would bear the sin of the guilty on his own shoulders, so that whoever believes in him would never encounter death. Not eternal death, but instead we would have the gift of eternal life. Eternal life just doesn't mean living on and on and on forever. If you just lived on and on and on forever, that would be terrible and boring and awful. Life, real, eternal life, is delighting in Jesus forever. Heaven is heaven because he is there. And for billions and billions of years, we are going to be exploring the goodness of God and not become tired of it. We will, re- we will think, man, I've just scratched the surface because of the unimaginable and unsearchable, beautiful, holy, loving king that sits on the throne there. So in light of all this, please do not see your discipleship as some kind of impersonal transaction that you are giving something to God. Giving yourself over to Christ in discipleship is a delight for me, and it is a delight for him. He enjoys it. It is personal on my side, and it is personal on his. Allow me to give you an, impersonal, uh, an imperfect analogy here. Many of you know my daughter Petra. She's four. She's beautiful. She's lovely. I love her. Uh, the other day, <clears throat> she made me a Christmas card. You can see. Here's one sign. Here's the other. To most of us, it, you know, this is not something most people would hang in there in there on their fridge i would because i love her she used my resources to make this it's really my paper she doesn't have paper she took it from my printer and and she got this paper out and she got out the markers and crowns and she made this for me but I, i love this card not because it adds some kind of intrinsic value to my life there's no financial gain to be received in fact this paper is worth less now financially than it was before she started but I delight in the expression of love that I get from my daughter. I delight in that. She loves me because I loved her first. She loves me because I have shown her love. I loved her before she was even physically born. I loved her before she could talk or walk. I loved her when she still only recognized me as a person who is not mommy. I loved her and she has learned reflexively to love me and display that love for me in giving me things, even though those things are actually mine. And I delight in that. Likewise, we love Christ because he first loved us. And he has displayed that love for us in ways far beyond what we even get. Petra doesn't know how much I love her. Far more than that, we don't really get how far Christ came to humble himself and be born here on this mud ball and to walk around with sinners, this person who had been worshipped by angels in heaven left that throne to come here. Not just to be a powerful ruler here, but to die. We don't get it. We can't comprehend it. All we can do is reflexively love him based upon the love that he has shown us. So now we move on to the second gift. We've already considered the gift that Christ gave of himself to Mary. He was giving her the blessed opportunity to be close to him, to be near him, to enjoy him. But there is a unique kind of gift that Mary received here in this passage for her act of discipleship. We we read in verses four through five, the response of the people in the room when Mary did this. They weren't happy about it. Start and follow along with me in verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted? 
like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And it says, and they scolded her. What are you thinking, Mary? Why would you do this? Now, we know from the book of John that Judas actually verbalizes this. Judas actually speaks the objection. He is the one who spoke up in defiance of her actions. But Mark reveals to us that there were some in the room, plural, who said these things to themselves. So although Judas vocalized these rebuttals, the Holy Spirit reveals to us through the pen of Mark, there were probably many of the disciples who were thinking the very same thing. Notice the plural, they scolded her. So when it came time to tell her, what are you thinking? It wasn't just Judas saying these words. But Jesus stepped in to defend Mary. Jesus steps in and he says these words, follow along beginning in verse 6. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, Jesus has spoken. That's the end of the discussion. Nobody seems to talk back to him. No one argues. No one complains. Please understand, Jesus was never greedy. Jesus did not ask for this gift. He never took anything from the poor, and he was abundantly compassionate, and he overflowed with empathy and care for the marginalized and the destitute. That's his M.O. So please don't see Jesus saying, don't give stuff to the poor. The entire rest of the New Testament would speak against that. Rather, what I want you to see here is the shocking nature of his refutation when he speaks to Judas's claim that somehow this is robbery. He goes on one step further to say, Truly I say to you, this is verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This word of God is eternal. Now, we're, we're big on memorializing things. We like to do this. People do this all the time. Every time that you take a picture, what are you doing? You are trying to freeze a moment in time to make it last longer. You are attempting to memorialize that thing. We are trying to prop things up and declare that their worth or value goes beyond the time that it fit into in history. This past Monday, I watched, um, I stayed up late on Monday night to watch the ceremony where they retired Kobe Bryant's jersey. Not just one, two jerseys. Number eight, number 24, that he wore throughout his career. They lifted these up into this banner in, in, in Staples Center. This, this guy was in the NBA for 20 years. He's number three all time in the NBA scoring list. He was amazing. I used to have this guy's poster on my wall when I was eight years old. But as I was watching this ceremony, there are a few things that really stood out to me. First of all, Magic Johnson referred to Kobe's achievements multiple times as true greatness. He is truly great. And as they were revealing the giant jerseys on the wall, the announcer said, quote, these will hang here forever. Are you kidding me? Please listen carefully here. I, I mean this in all love. There is a coming day, if the Lord allows the world to continue long enough, where no living person will even know the name Kobe Bryant. They will forget him. No one will remember you. No one will remember me. Even the most famous, the most, most wealthy people in all of the world will at best become a footnote in a history book that no one will ever read. Your achievements, what are they? 
they are not going to last. It's likely that you're going to outlive your own reputation. But look what Jesus did for Mary. Look at this gift that he gives to her. He made a promise that this event would be memorialized forever. It is in the scripture. It is eternally going to be remembered. There's an old saying. I think it actually comes from a song. I'm not sure. It goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's super cheesy. I love it. Has anybody ever heard that before? Of course, yes. But the content of that, as cheesy as it might sound, it's really true. And what it's saying is so important for us to grasp as we live out our discipleship before the Lord. There are things that you and I do that are, in fact, of eternal value. What we do for Christ will be remembered and will be worked out for the good of eternal things. The vast majority of what we do in our life, though I fear, has no eternal value. The majority of entertainment that we intake is nothing more than a distraction from what is really truly worth your time and your energy. Is it wrong for us to watch a movie or to enjoy a television show or to follow a sports team? No. Is it wrong for you to eat a Snickers bar? No. But if your diet is 95% Snickers, we've got a problem here, right? There is a problem when our entertainment or things of value that we are intaking are far less than the things of value that we are expending ourselves on. Take stock of your life. Ensure that you're not wasting the gifts that God's given you. God honors that. We see that here. He honors Mary for that. He is for us. And he delights in us using our gifts in ways that matter in eternity. So this brings us now to our third and final gift that we're going to consider from the passage. And that's the gift of Judas. As I mentioned before, John's gospel informs us that Judas is the one who raised the objection to Mary's act of love. But it also tells us why. He does that in verse 6. It says, He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Why did he want this 300 denarii? So he could have it. He was using Jesus to get what he wanted. He was a scoundrel. I like how Kent Hughes describes him. He says, He was a man who knew the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Our text this morning began with an ominous evil as the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to find a way to capture and kill Jesus. They were doing so, it says, quote, by stealth. But they had no opportunity to do so. But now Mark is going to put the top slice of bread on our inclusio with these chilling words. Follow along, starting in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Just take for a moment. We've been talking about Jesus as real treasure, the treasure of heaven. Take for a moment the word and transition them, where it says in verse 10, to betray him. Change that to, to give away Real treasure from heaven in exchange for money. Now, he's not going to spend much time there with them, and we're not going to spend much time discussing this. 
But I want to close by pointing out three things that we should remember. First of all, Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas clearly disproved of Jesus' way of doing things here. He did not like the fact that this money was be, being used to bless Jesus. This gift was used to bless Jesus instead of money going into his own pockets. But we certainly know some of his motivations were financial. We don't know all of his motivations. It's likely that money was always his primary motivation in following Jesus. When he was called to follow Jesus on this three-year camping trip they've been on, why did he go? He saw some kind of possible gain from being near Christ. Why are you here? There are many who come to church. There are many who attend churches and church buildings all across New York and the world who are there because they think being near Christ will give them gain. What do you think the health wealth gospel is? It's the idea that God will give you something special. So you want to be near him just so you can gain stuff. He was tired, though, of sneaking into the cash from the donations. So now he was looking for a bigger payday. So Judas, in his rage, he gave the enemies of Christ a gift. He gave them the promise of betrayal. This, by the way, is why I call this sermon the gift of the mad guy. The rewards of sin, here's the second thing I want you to see. The rewards of sin, they're not sweet. I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the story here, but Judas was eventually paid 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. He was given money, but we learned from Matthew chapter 27 that he refused to take it. He actually grabbed the coins and threw them on the ground in the temple. He didn't want it. The rewards of sin are not sweet. And then he ran out and he hanged himself. The third thing that I want you to see is this. I want to point out that it's really easy to point the finger at Judas as some kind of vile, greedy traitor. And we're right to do so. The Bible always paints him in that light. He might be the most single, most disgusting individual that we see inside the pages of Scripture. His sin is the treachery that led Jesus to being captured and killed. This is one of the greatest sins in history. But please understand that there are only two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people. Ultimately, you are either like Mary or you're like Judas. That's it. Those are your options. You're either subservient to Christ, living in light of the gospel, giving everything you have, recognizing that it really belongs to him, or you're harboring internal rebellion against Christ. Maybe your outward actions look fine. Maybe they will for a time. Not everyone sins outwardly in the same way. Judas looked like a good guy. I'm constantly shocked at how the other disciples seem to view him before the betrayal. They think he's above reproach. He appeared to be a disciple. In fact, the other disciples thought highly of him. But inside him, there was a rage against God that was never quelled. Judas was just using the appearance for godliness, for personal gain. Perhaps that describes you. You're here at church on Christmas Eve. That looks good. It looks good for you. Not everyone comes to church with proper motives, though. Are you here because you truly love Jesus? Are you in love with your Savior? Please hear me out. I'm not here to condemn you. I have no authority to do that. I can't judge you. God alone is our ultimate judge. But God's word condemns us all. God's word reveals to us that we are all guilty of sin against God. And we are required to live a life of perfection And all of you would agree with me, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. 
We are sinners by nature and sinners because we like it. But God is merciful. And there is no greater testament of God's love than the fact that Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, born into a lowly estate for the purpose of being handed over by Judas into the hands of violent men who would kill him. That's the reason we sang away in a manger. That's why he was born. God allowed his son to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be scorned, to be beaten, and even to be killed so that we who are sinners just like Judas, our hearts are just like his, yet we are able to be set free and transformed and to become his children. Why? Because God loved the world. That's it. That's what happened to me. God delivered me from the kingdom of darkness and he transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is our risen Lord. He is worthy of your life. Whether you understand it or not, he is your king. So I hope that if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your savior, that before you leave the building, you would talk to me about that. I want you to know Jesus. Talk to me or anybody else you've seen up here because he's worthy of your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the great testimony that we saw in the life of Mary. We thank you, Lord, that you had saved her and that you allowed her to present Christ with this offering so that we might learn what true discipleship looks like. Please, God, help us to be disciples who live like that, who recognize the real treasure of the universe is Christ himself. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us. Lord, where we are weak and where we are ignorant of our failings and where we are still in love with things of this world, God, please make the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Please, God, do that for us today. And for those who are unsaved, God, please open their eyes. By the power of your spirit, in Christ's name we pray, amen.